0: Hello, and welcome to Technicast, a podcasting community open to all arts and humanities researchers. My name's Polly, and together with Julian and Jo, we invite a different researcher each episode to introduce their work. In our last episode, we heard from Summer Meadow Phillips about speciesism and shared beingness. And in today's episode, we continue along these lines, looking at work on nature, the limits of language and encounters with the non-human. We are thrilled to welcome Rowan Evans to the podcast, who has kindly shared a recording of his poetic performance of translations of bird calls through Old English.
1: Hello, my name's Rowan Evans, and I'm a poet, composer, and sound artist. I'm in the third year of my practice based PhD in English at Royal Holloway, which explores radical encounters with early medieval language and literature in modern and experimental poetics. The recording you're going to hear is of a performance text, called Voces Animantium, which I describe as directions for an actual or hypothetical event, and was recorded in collaboration with Maisie Newman and Eleanor Lower in Lee Woods, Bristol in September 2020. In ornithology, the term playback denotes the ethically dubious practice where recordings of birds are played from speakers in the wild to induce and then recapture nearby birdsong. The writing of this text started with a provocation. What would happen if a group of people went into the woods and shouted the old English words for bird calls? And, if the people also vocalized with modern English words, would it make any difference? I wanted to produce a set of speculative instructions for staging interlinguistic difference against interspecies difference, to mark the history of avian voices entering and affecting English language over time, against the actual presence of those creatures whose calls are ultimately untranscribable in any language. The methodical absurdity of this task would be akin to a kind of magic. Birds, writes Michael J. Warren, are an important subject of wonder in the Exeter book Old English Riddles. Both nameable and anonymous, they undergo corporeal transformations and transgressions that reveal the epistemological limits of naming, and teach us about the processes of learning and knowing. I began this text by collating all the verbs used to describe bird calls in the riddles, as well as other important verbs directly associated with or describing their actions, and comparing these to their modern English equivalents. These include the Old English verbs chirmeth, swogin, singer, onhuge, hugendra, and sprekin. In riddle number 55 in the Exeter book, we read the line, Little Wichter, nymneth ye or Little Creatures, they name themselves. The practice of naming in the riddles and in early medieval monastic education is underpinned by the etymologiae of St. Isidore of Seville. As Warren explains, onomastic principles are guided by etymology, according to which the name of a given thing is determined by its intrinsic nature. From the Greek etimos, meaning true, actual, or real, the Isidorian understanding of etymology holds to a platonic belief that the essential nature of a thing can be known, and that language gives us access to it, as Isidore writes, when you have seen whence a word has originated, you understand its force more quickly. Indeed, one's insight into anything is clearer when its etymology is known. And yet, in the riddles, the creatures in question evade this knowing, as the poem's actions of naming and sounding stage a repeated reaching towards, or attempts at making visible, something that shifts in form and meaning. Unlike a scholastic proposition, the actual answers to these riddles are never given in the manuscript. In my own text, I do not share the belief that an animal's nature can be fully known or contained in language, but want to argue instead that there is something fascinating about the repeated failure of that task across history. The title vocis animantium means literally the voices of animals or perhaps living voices in Latin and is taken from the classification of animal noises found in scholastic texts, like Alfric of Insham's Grammar and Glossary. Jonathan Hassai discusses how Alfric's list of animal noises translates them from Latin into Old English, which, in the grammar, is meant to aid the learning of Latin verbs. In this list, Sai argues, both language transcriptions gesture towards the memory of an actual sound that can never be transcribed, in any human language or writing system, each of these verbal vocalizations, he writes, are perhaps best construed as ambilingual utterances that resonate across species difference. The list is therefore figured as an interface between species and between languages. So in Alphic's grammar, we have a list that contains canis latrit, the dog barks, lupus ululate, the wolf howls, Equus hinit, the horse neighs etc. In my text I was interested in the multiple layers of translation enacted in putting the sounds of birds through the filter of different languages, specifically the onomatopoeic transcription of bird song in Old English to Modern English, and so the subsequent losses and distortions gained by that action. In conversation with a collaborator who also reads Old English, I was excited by this idea that Old English bird verbs were a form of analog recording where the sounds of birds as they appeared to an early medieval ear were imperfectly laid down into language, to be stored over time, and made subject to distortions in their transformation into modern English. I also enjoyed the fact that despite the potential knowledge gained by learning these sounds in a grammatical sense, Alfric seemed uneasy about the absurdity, or perhaps the grotesqueness, of actually vocalizing them. It is very foolish, he writes, that one should bark or bleat. This seemed another worthwhile provocation. Their lift little Offer bog hliotha, da sind blacke svide, speiarta, salofade, sangas ropa, hea panthera, hluda cjöna, treedat biaro nasas, twillam nitha bjarne The key. Finch fincheth.
2: Finch thinks.
1: Higera spreketh singeth.
2: Jay speaks sings.
1: Cuscot cooeth.
2: pigeon coos.
1: Crower croweth.
2: Crow crows.
1: Higera chermeth. bugeth on hergeth.
2: Jay charms, bends, mimics.
1: J, yak yaketh.
2: Cuckoo gawks.
1: Rare dumble, rare. Bitten booms. Scraf skiafia. Cormorant scrapes. Igera bjorketh, blatteth, gradeth, yelleth.
2: Jay barks, bleats, honks, yells.
1: Swan swigeth, swogeth, swinzieth, singeth.
2: Swan is silent, resounds, rings, sings.
1: The gesture. Put the quick names into a tape. A microphone, a clandestine device. Venture to the gather, to the clearing, to the localing wood. The group share out the quick names and keep them warm in their throats. Imagine playback, unthroating in the clearing. Know the shrieking thing by the uncloaked name, the force most quick. Animate. Dark track.
3: Hold the quick names carefully. Words were a recording device. Each bird sound cut into language's surface, now becoming, now waxing. Say what, say how, gesture that rare decibel. Go, enter a wood that won't resolve to easy clearing. Assembly of stone. Or maybe a series of side fissures crept through, shod.
2: Divide among the number, some taking quick names, some the known words. Be gyak, be cuckoo, be wood pigeon, be cascorta. Against the neck, if needed, a found feather. Imagine a masked head, one will lead perhaps, named Hyagora.
1: the gather. happen in that place, a translation across species and languages, bird to root to tongue, each word merely approximate to its enigmata, no true etymos, burnt and concealed branch life, newly named we divide, so speak across.
3: That interim composed of what? Sounds to which the spoken is only an attempt. Birds already hidden in etymology as a forest, dressed in dark, some wild to the peopled homes. Of what the lifted air upholds. Of the main and teeming ground, crossed over and again by names where none can tread. Nor earth, nor air. or alone,
2: correspond with the hooded device, self-lane voice betraying errancy. Imagine a cradled task, something material, more similar to breath than a ship, maintaining dialogue. It was getting dark once, imagine a subtle gag.
1: Each can hear the words of the no people who are living in the world. I can hear the words of the people who in the world. ich can hear the stille of the people Saga hwati chata, de svaa showen and vissen, klyde on hörka, halet bodiga, vilkumene fele, woe the mindre. gone, sometimes the torn dwellings, old evening shape.
0: So, Rowan, thank you so much for sharing the recording of that performance with us and for speaking a little bit about your practice now. I was really struck by your phrase that you used in your introduction about the absurdity of the methodology and how that is being akin to some sort of magic. And I just thought, after listening to the recording, I completely agree. It does feel (laughs) kind of magical listening to that recording. And can I just ask you to expand on that idea of magic and how that comes through within your own practice and method?
1: Sure, yeah. So, I mean, this particular performance piece is part of one of the chapters of my thesis that looks at various Old English medicinal and other herbal charms. So these texts, which are mostly gathered in one or two manuscripts, which contain treatments for various illnesses, but also what we might now call spells or charms to ward off various creatures or in modern terminology, more supernatural kind of ailments than just a, a cold or a boil or a, um, a, a sprained foot or something. So I've, I've been looking at a lot of these different magical, medicinal, the sort of borderline texts, some of which are very long and elaborate. So there's one called the Field Blessing or the the Bot, which I often talk about, which is incredibly long and involves very elaborate instructions where you have to go to various points on the compass in your in an area of land and collect bits of turf and uh, leaves from certain trees, uh, milk from certain animals, and then you take them to be blessed by a priest and you say certain words and then at nightfall you replace them. So the absurdity starts to come through there with some of these texts where the, the ability to actually carry out the instructions seems very, very difficult or would require quite a lot of people. Others of the charms are, are quite short and, and simple. I suppose when, I, when I'm thinking about the idea of absurdity or, or silliness and, and play as well, I'm also thinking of someone like Jerome Rothenberg, so he he translates sort of from the 1960s onwards. Lots of texts from various global cultures, um, rituals, games, activities, instructions. And um, this is around the same time, I think, Fluxus and sort of text based performance practices is starting to happen as well. And there's often quite a close and interesting link between, um, between play, between the absurd and, and what we might call the spiritual or the, the arcane. And I think it's particularly important when we're working with something like an early medieval text or old English or a sort of a quite distant textual artifact that we don't do so with too much reverence so that we're not too kind of dusty and about our approach to it and about the ways that we translate or work with them. So that was, that was kind of where I was coming from. And also I I sometimes have a, a bit of a difficulty with a sort of broadly big R romantic approach to, to birds in particular, or the idea that might be something that there is something you know obviously very beautiful about hearing hearing birds call and and witnessing them in in environments but i also again kind of wanted to play against what i might think of as an overly reverent or kind of uh yeah a a seriousness that sometimes you get with with poetic responses to these things so i always a sense of play particularly in in collaborative work that i make you can hear us running around at one point so there's a part in the text where in, uh, in the text itself, there's a circle with various words written around the edge. I didn't have time to explain this in the introduction, but one of the ways that we ended up interpreting that was I ended up drawing a huge circle around the woods with a stick, which you can hear me dragging. <laughs> and then I was with two other people and we were all sort of running backwards and forwards across the space and shouting different words. And that was one way of responding to uh, the instructions that I'd written.
0: Yeah, those were fantastic, I really enjoyed the scrunching moments where you could hear the leaves and the twigs, yeah. and I think that sense of play really comes through and I think it's so important with repisting ideas of the past more broadly, but kind of especially poetic performances like this, I thought that was what made it really special. In terms of looking at other interspecies and linguistic encounters, mm-hmm. does that sense of play come into it? I was wondering this performance is really tied to birds are you looking at any other species in your doctoral research or in your in your own practice or poetry
1: yeah it's interesting I think so again this this chapter the the other major area of of research was looking more at herbariums and plants so there's a sequence of poems which looks at um, wildflowers and, and moving through woodland environments and again also by virtue of working with, with certain of the um, Old English extubric riddles, it, it, it was mainly birds that started to infiltrate or enter those texts. And the, and there are, if you look at my other poems and other work, which is not necessarily Old English related, I have often <laughs> ended up writing about birds. I think elsewhere in the thesis, so the, the thesis is, is broadly concerned with modern encounters with early medieval languages, mostly Old English and Old Norse, mm. a bit of Old Irish as well. And often those encounters, as I call them, take place in natural environments or places of wilderness or at the edges of human habitation. So they are often populated by various beasts and non-human or more than human creatures. But ma- yeah, mon- ma- mainly birds and and flowers in this particular bit. Oh,
0: that sounds wonderful. I like the idea <laughs> of the wild wildflowers as well and those beings, the non-human beings that exist on the edges of of structures that we've built
1: i just remembered that i have i've have also written about foxes but not as part of the ccs but in a sequence called freak red which is about urban Mm. foxes or encounters with urban foxes and then moving between the city and a nearby woodland and that also attempts at one point to transliterate the scream of a fox this fox kept on, I kept on arriving home quite late mm. at night, and this fox would be waiting for me, or I imagined it did, in a kind of, um, midnight frenzy, Imagine that this fox was waiting for me each time, and would sort of stare at me and scream, as we <laughs> do, and I kind of tried to write it down as this, a little bit like the, you know, the idea of not really being able to transcribe non-human creatures' calls or language, and that it's really this impossible task, but that there might be something interesting about comparing the attempts or failures <laughs> to do that at different points in history.
0: The the failures throughout history, I thought that was a really interesting phrase that you spoke about a little bit in the introduction, and that mm. inability of or the limits of our own language and of naming to contain that sense of the animal's nature. I'd love to hear more about how you encounter those failures of language in your own research. I
1: suppose I'm often interested or return to ideas of failure and again I suppose related to the idea of play in the sense of not having to complete or completely wrap up or explain something and I suppose when I'm thinking about using older vocabularies or looking back at the history of languages rather than doing so in a way that's trying to Find something that's solid and unchanging. You know, you can have this idea that if you if you go back and you look at the old the old texts, particularly early English, that you might find you know the point of origin or something stable. And I have a lot of problems with that point of view, mm-hmm. which which I look at elsewhere in my thesis, uh, in terms of how that's often tied up in quite quite dangerous ideologies. But my interest in in working with with these earlier languages or utterances is often the idea of destabilizing or at creating plurality or or recognizing contingency and change. So particularly as we think about the names of animals or the names of birds, these are things that change at various points in history, according to different cultures, different practices, different languages. And that when we start to trace something like a name, it becomes very unstable or it it has these about faces or changes of color. And that was particularly brought into focus by tracking some of these names of birds and also in the other poems wildflowers as well but we you know we tend to associate the idea of naming this coming out of the idea of adam in genesis naming the animals and then claiming them to to human dominance i, I call you this and now you're that or i call you a bird i call <laughs> you a fish so yeah I, I think again it was just wanting to kind of rub up against that or destabilize it a bit and and open out our approach to to naming or or uh, claiming things more to a sense of openness or possibility
0: and am I right in thinking that in your doctoral research you're looking at modernists of 20th century and contemporary of so 21st century poetic practices around these encounters with early medieval past do you see that tracking of maybe the naming as change between modernist practice to our contemporary age or there's in the orientation or the fascination with those encounters with the past between early 20th century practice and now
1: Mm, yeah yes so so my there isn't really a cut off point but i suppose most of the poetries that i look at in the thesis are kind of from about late 60s or mm. early 70s at the earliest so you know, so I've been writing a bit on Barry mm. McSweeney and then the the most contemporary I write on is Caroline Bergvall and, and other poets that are working at the moment and it's been interesting gathering those sets of texts together and also one of the things that comes up a lot when you're working with very old texts is this idea of where period boundaries end or begin how we canonize certain authors or mm. texts how we think about them um, talking to themselves or to others and something that has been very interesting working with quite a lot of poets from the 1970s or 1960s 70s 80s and now is the big shifts in terms of the political circumstances or, or what was going on at the time and how that's impacting on the work but also then the repetitions and similarities so particularly working on uh, 1970s, 1980s texts and going into the Thatcher years. And uh, and also, uh, you know, I've been looking at someone like Bill Griffiths, who was working with Old English Charms to think about ideas around protest um, and unseen violences in terms of how, how a government or, or country might think about or allow or disallow certain forms of public activism. And again, that in the last year, has become incredibly relevant to to what's going on at the moment. So that again has been very interesting when writing about it critically and thinking about how it's speaking to my own work. Is yeah, how those circumstances might might change, but also uh, prefigure one another. Um, certainly, with the in terms of the ecological concern, there's there's much more of a, a pressing or widespread understanding now of things like you know the. The climate crisis and and our impact upon mm. non-human environments that were maybe more uh, in a kind of fetal stage in the, in the 60s and 70s yeah it's it's been it's been interesting kind of hopping between uh, doing a lot of yeah uh what i call tran- trans or transhistoric movement where we've got the ninth century to you know 20th and then the 21st um
0: yeah. Sounds like such an exciting project and trans-historical hopping. That's a, I love that. Yeah, phrase. that's a critical that's term. You can, <laughs> you can cite that. <laughs> that's brilliant. Well, Rowan, thank you so much again for, uh, for speaking with me today. And thank you for sharing your research no and worries. that recording of that performance. It's just been a pleasure speaking to you and hearing a bit more about your research.
1: Brilliant. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much for listening to Technicast today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks again to Rowan for sharing his research and to Techneath for their ongoing support. If you would like to be featured on the Technicast, please get in touch with us at technicaster at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. We'll be back again in May with a new theme looking at technology and welcoming two new researchers to the podcast to hear about their work. See you then!